Hi everyone, today is September 20th, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Barry Connors, who is Professor and Chair of the Department of Neuroscience at Brown University. Hi, Hi. Hi Barry. Hi. Um, Barry spent his career studying the diverse functions of excitatory and inhibitory synapses in the neocortex and is responsible for establishing many of the fundamental intrinsic electrical properties of neocortical neurons. He also has a body of work defining mechanisms of seizure initiation, propagation, and termination. But today we'll focus on his influential work on electrical communication and inhibitory neurons of the cortex and the thalamus. So um, hello again and thanks for coming. And uh, around the room we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Joe Beatty. Hi. Hi, Joe. We've got uh, Todd Troyer. Hello. And we've got me. I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, so I, I was looking through our archive, and I realized that we've so far not had an opportunity to have a really detailed discussion of gap junctions and electrical coupling of real neurons in our series. So we're very lucky to have you here today, Barry, who you know, a bona fide real experimentalist, um, to we talk to. Imaginary <laughs> <laughs> so to talk about this young and I guess uh, a little mysterious. You've called it obscure, I, I guess uh, yourself. So I can I can use these this kind of terminology. I called it a backwater. Oh, okay, well, you, well, that's there it is. So. <laughs> Uh, so I want to just... Um, and actually, I, I would say it's not young. Well, okay, so that's an interesting point. So the first description of mammalian uh, gap junctions was 40 years ago. Is that right? First demonstration. That's, about, that, that's right. That's, uh, and before that, they had been described in invertebrates. Um, famous paper by Firstpan and Potter, 1958 or so. Um, but there was someone, uh, was a Japanese worker named Watanabe, who had published a paper at about the same time, slightly later, and he was recording in something called snapping shrimp, although the species is a little unclear to me. Um, both of them found pretty good like physiological evidence for uh, direct electrical coupling between cells, because at that point they had no idea what mediated that. Uh, the actual substrate came later. Um, I guess it was around 1972. So well, the first electrical recordings were made in the 70s. I thought the anatomical work dated from... No, sorry. The first electrical work was done in the, the 90s. Fif- in the oh, 50s. 50s. Okay. Yeah. So they, were they doing dual recordings from the shrimps? Or, I mean, why, what do you say? Best uh, first evidence. What kind of evidence did they, did they yeah, get? So, so, well, the first pan and potter stuff is what gets the most of the... Press. I think they, and probably properly, get the credit for showing it first. And they did that in uh, crayfish, in these, I don't know the system terribly well, but a uh, couple of large um, uh, motor axons that have this big, now we know, septate junctions in them. Um, anyway, there's a gap junction there. Uh, and they did, yes, dual recordings from the pre and the postsynaptic element, and they showed that current could flow. Um, Ironically, I guess, this happens to be one of the most uh, rectifying electrical synapses, I think, still to date. Uh, There's great current flow from the pre to the postsynaptic element, and with extremely fast kinetics, the channels presumably gate closed when you shift the voltage in the other direction. So current really flows only one way. Uh, But but yeah, dual recordings. Um, Watanabe had, uh, he also had dual recordings, and I just recently went back and actually found this paper and, and read it, and it's 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 
pretty neat because he um, says a lot of things about the potential role of gap junctions in, in synchrony amongst neurons, which Hirschpan and Potter had not been, it really wasn't on their radar at all, I think. They saw the gap junctions in the crayfish as uh, a very rapid way to get an effective signal. I, I think it's part of the tail flip response, so it's part of the escape circuitry of the crayfish. Uh, and the gap junctions were a good way to get a reliable, as rapid as possible signal in a, an animal that lives presumably in a colder environment where chemical synapses have much longer synaptic delays. And so speed was presumably of the essence here. Uh, whereas Watanabe was looking in these cells within ganglia, I think, that uh, had spontaneous activity, even in the isolated prep, and, and he saw that there was nice synchrony among some of these, both at the subthreshold and uh, spiking levels, and, and actually talked explicitly about how, uh, well, I don't know what he, I don't remember his, what he called them at the time, but these, these electrical interactions, uh, that they might have some role in coordinating the activity of neurons in a, in a more general way. So let's jump to mammalian systems. What were people, were people interested in this, these findings at all? What, when did this field suddenly take off? Because I think it was, I, my impression was that it was really in the 90s that people started thinking about this stuff in terms of... Uh, well, there's actually a fair amount of history between the, okay, great. the 50s. Okay, so tell us. <laughs> not, not that Inform I'm me. an expert here. <laughs> um, okay, let me see if I can pull together at least the, the, the highlights of the timeline. So, so there was uh, First Man and Potter and Watanabe in the 50s. Um, within a year or two, Mike Bennett... Uh, was recording evidence for gap junctions, or let's say, let's call them electrical synapses, gap junctions between neurons. And it was recording from uh, neurons in, in fish, um, a variety of fish. And he was doing this at Woods Hole. And there's a great picture of him in 1958 or 9 sitting at the rig in Woods Hole, uh, looking like, you know, he just graduated high school. <laughs> <clears throat> And he was, uh, he, he really looked at a whole variety of different, and he was working with um, Harry Grinfest at the time, and uh, sticking electrodes and often multiple electrodes in neurons in a whole variety of different fish and a variety of nuclei, um, famous set of papers from, uh, I think they're midbrain neurons, these big fat midbrain nuclei, you can see them almost with your naked eye through the top of the top of the brainstem um, and he was recording from them and, and uh, showed that there's electrical coupling that there's a lot of synchrony uh, and he started thinking a lot about biophysical properties of these connections and, and what they might do for a network of neurons um, mammalian preps as far as I recall the first the first good evidence for coupling between neurons, uh, coupling in this sense was was Rodolfo's work, and that was in the um, mesencephalic nucleus of five, which not one of the more popular places to uh, do electrophysiology, but actually Alberto Pareda, uh, who's at Einstein now, um, has recently come back to that prep and, and just published a beautiful paper in the Journal of Neuroscience. So Rodolfo had. Uh, evidence from single cell recordings, I think, in vivo, that these cells were making, were 
uh, interacting with one another electrically. So I, th I don't remember the details of the experiments, but you could fire off uh, an action potential. You, you could stimulate the nerve trunk, and you could get little spikelets in some of the cells that had the properties you'd predict of um, little electrical coupling potentials. So as far as I know, that was the first, first good physiological evidence. And that was in the seven, That was 70. I think it was about 72. Yeah. So, so didn't Kendall and Spencer uh, use the concept of electrical connections to explain spikelets that they'd seen in the hippocampus in the 60s, I think? And that, they didn't have paired recordings, and it was a, it was a sort of an interpretation of mm -hmm. spikelets that might have been controversial, but it was the influential paper that a lot of people read. Yeah, yes. I think there was a series of papers where they did, and they really are, I haven't looked at them, picked the papers in years, but they're beautiful recordings, yeah. um, especially considering the fact that they were done in vivo in the 60s, early 60s, yeah. I think. And, and yeah, they found in pyramidal cells of the hippocampus that they would have, of course, full-blown action potentials. But in some cases, these cases, these things they call D-spikes, yeah. lowercase D-spikes. And they could trigger them by androdromic activation of a nearby neuron. Uh, or so they. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it's a little tricky because you weren't, you couldn't. They weren't recording in pairs. So everything was sort of inferred, but you're antidromically activating a group of neurons, you're using a probabilistic argument about who's being activated on what trial. Right. And it was a popular kind of experiment to do for studying recurrent inhibition at that time, and maybe that's what they had set out to... I can't remember exactly what they originally right. set out to study. My recollection, though, is that they ultimately concluded although the data are ambiguous. But, but I thought their interpretation was that those D-spikes were dendritic electrogenesis. Oh, I may be confusing. Uh, but, but it's been a long time since uh, I read those. Maybe papers. this was my later interpretation. <laughs> so, we, can we cut to, so can we cut to present day now? Can you tell us, can you lay out some of the foundational stuff, basically, about you know, what, what do we know right now about what, what, where are neurons coupled? What's the sort of base, what, what kinds of neurons are coupled? Mm -hmm. Where do we see uh, electrical coupling mostly in the, in the brain? Sure. Um, well, uh, I, I like to say, and I think uh, I say it because I think it's true, that there are uh, electrical synapses amongst neurons in, in just essentially every part of the CNS, central nervous system, from uh, certainly in the retina. It's, it's, uh, I don't think there's a major type of neuron in the retina that doesn't have gap junctions with somebody, including the photoreceptors. Um, but everything else from... Uh, uh, the forebrain down to, to the spinal cord and, and to some extent, uh, actually to uh, quite a bit, and in the, in the, even in the peripheral nervous system. So, so uh, these gap junctions between neurons are, are everywhere, which is not to say that they are connecting all kinds of cells in each of those places. Um, but I think there's just about every place that anybody has looked hard, they've found that at least some of the neurons have gap junctions amongst some of the other neurons. So a few of the better studied examples would be in, uh, well, cerebral cortex, where in the mature system, um, there's quite a large literature now about gap junctions between inhibitory interneurons of various types. Um, same is true in the hippocampus. Uh, olfactory cortex has been less well studied. Um, in the thalamus, you find that the uh, 
I don't know about interneurons in the thalamus, but the GABAergic cells of the reticular nucleus of the thalamus are definitely coupled by electrical synapses. The olfactory bulb, the striatum, uh, at least again amongst some of the interneurons, Charlie could say more than I could. Um, uh, various places in the brainstem, one, one of the best studied and most uh, sort of one of the more early places to study this is in the inferior olive. These are the cells in the brainstem that is the source of the climbing fibers to the cerebellar cortex. Um, they're beautiful, interesting cells that generate uh, very odd sorts of um, intrinsic oscillations. They do it with uh, often with a quite a degree of synchrony, and and their gap junction coupled to one another. That's the only way that the cells interact. Um, that's a nice system that's been studied by quite a few groups. Uh, what about mixed synapses? There were, you know, in a mammalian brain, we don't hear too much about them, but in frog spinal cord. There was quite a literature on axons that made both electrical and chemical. Um, And that seemed like something that kind of made sense to do, to have a a faster and a slower component of the EPSP. Right. But uh, do we ever see anything like that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, So so certainly uh, there, there is... Maybe a growing school of thought. Jim Nagy um, is somebody who does a lot of work on uh, connections and their distribution. Uh, a lot of the best antibodies out there, antibodies that he generated in his laboratory. Uh, teaming up with other people like uh, John Rash, who does, uh, what is it called? Frill, freeze replica immunolabeling. Um, so combining immunolabeling for specific connections with really nice various kinds of electron microscopy. Uh, these guys have shown um, connection 36, which is strictly a neuronal, uh, neuronally expressed, at least in the CNS, um, in, in a lot of interesting places. And, and Nagy is talking more and more, more, and more about uh, mixed, um, you know, axodendritic synapses, mixed in the sense that they have all the hallmarks of chemical release, um, active zones, uh, uh, vesicles, um, very close, closely opposed or closely neighboring um, gap junctions with various connections in them. Um, I heard him give a talk uh, a year or two ago where he made a pretty bold claim that uh, we are going to see and appreciate the fact that there are mixed synapses in more and more places in the brain than we probably uh, ever hoped for. Um, certainly in, in some other vertebrate systems. I mean, the best studied system is, uh, is in, again, in the fish, teleost fish, especially goldfish. Alberto Pareda has studied um, the, this is their eighth nerve axons that synapse onto these giant brainstem neurons called Mouthner cells. So goldfish have two Mouthner cells there. They mediate, again, a tail flip and escape response, uh, and they get monosynaptic input from eighth nerve axons. They have gigantic dendrites, and you can stick electrodes in there. And the presynaptic cells can be recorded as well, the presynaptic axons. Those axons terminate on the Mouthner cell dendrite with a mixed glutamatergic uh, gap junction synapse. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, they have just gorgeous anatomy, 
amino labeling. Um, these things are sort of all intermixed. The glutamatergic release sites with the gap junctions are all just scattered about. Uh, physiology is very well studied by those guys. There's plasticity. Um, you can depress the synapses. You can potentiate the synapses. Under most circumstances, the potentiation and depression of the electrical component goes in parallel with the uh, plasticity of the glutamatergic component. And when you record the, if you stimulate presynaptically, you record the postsynaptic dual EPSP, a really short latency, fast rising electrical component followed by the slightly slower glutamatergic component. There are NMDA receptors in there. They're important to the plasticity. Uh, it's, it's really a great system. So um, could turn out that this is a pretty good model system for all sorts of synapses that we have yet to discover and appreciate. So when we're talking about uh, on that subject of anatomy, um, so one of the, the hallmarks of the inhibitory connections like in the, in the neocortex, right? So it's the same cell type. You get, you get electrical coupling between different types of inhibitory neurons of the same type. So how much in other words, you, you tend to see the. I mean, you're, the likelihood that you'll get gap junction connections is much higher if the two cells are of the same type. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. generally true with a couple of exceptions. So how much do we know about why and what the the anatomy that makes cells connect to each other and yeah. how that thing is formed? Uh, presumably, it's not just the the connexons that are finding other pairs because they're all. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I. Uh, I would love to know the answer. Um, I mean, the paradox is that you have many different subtypes of inhibitory interneurons. To the extent it's been studied, they're, they're, most of them, if not all of them, are using the same connexin as their primary uh, constituent of gap junctions. So, so okay, let's say let's take the two we know best, the parvalbumin cells and the somatostatin expressing cells. For the most part... PV cells connect to one another through gap junctions, and somatostatin cells connect to only somatostatin cells. They're all using connexin 36. They're all intermingled across most of the layers of the cortex. So why doesn't the somatostatin cell couple with the PV cell? Uh, short answer is I don't know. Uh, obviously, it's not the fact that they're using different connexins. Well, I can't rule that out completely. There might be some minor component of another connection that helps with recognition, but I think much more likely is that the cells have recognition systems uh, you know, that are common in development and um, cell surface things that help them to uh, recognize the correct targets and avoid other targets. Well, that's because they're 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 in synapses, right? They're they're aggregated these these. Uh Connects on connections, right? There's there's a bunch of them together. So is there other machinery? I mean, that you can see like an EM or I mean, is there other machinery in that? Absolutely, synapse. Or? I haven't done this work myself, but uh, yeah, people are people who study gap junctions are um, lately uh, very very interested in the accessory proteins. So so yeah, I mean, the, again, the textbook picture of a gap junction is to show all these channels just sort of clustered together very tightly. And that's the gap junction, and you now it's the simple idea that all you need, to, it's the channels that we focus on. But in fact, uh, there's a variety of, of subsurface proteins that 
connect to the gap junctions and then connect to the cytoskeletal processes. Uh, there's something called ZO1, which is a protein that's gotten a lot of attention that seems to be important to uh, aggregating and anchoring the gap junctions in the right place. And, but there's a whole variety of others. Again, Jim Nagy, I just looked at a, uh, a review that Jim Nagy wrote about some of these other accessory proteins. And, um, so so it's, it's, it's sort of like the glutamatergic postsynaptic uh, uh, parts of the synapse. The, the number of players on the postsynaptic side is you know, it's, it's just proliferating. And these are going to be very important for understanding how the, the proteins, the gap junction, the, the connections get trafficked into, into the, the synaptic areas and, um, and recaptured and the whole turnover process, which could underlie a lot of the plasticity. Of the, so this leads us into the development develop. question because the, the, maybe the cells are making gap junctions with each other a little bit more uh, indiscriminately early on and some of them get... Like synapses, and some of them get. Is that is that possible? Uh, yeah, it's very possible. In fact, if not likely, um, uh, in a very general sense, gap junctions are all over the place in the early uh, in, during early development, starting with the oocyte, which uh, when it divides into two cells, those two cells are generally connected by gap junctions, and as those cells then divide and continue to divide, um, there's a huge number of gap junctions that connect all these early embryonic cells together. It's well-documented in all kinds of species. As cells differentiate down different paths toward different kinds of tissues, they tend to uncouple with one another, keep their gap junctions, again, with cells of similar type, but uh, disconnect from the ones that are going down different fate paths. So do you see a full diversity of the different, the various, the 20 different, I think it's 20 different kinds of connections and various, I mean, is that a source of the diversity of connection types maybe, or do we know anything about whether that's uh, important? I'm sure it's really not something I know very <laughs> much about, but uh, uh, as you said, there are 20 different kinds of connections, and um, I know that certainly in some of the better studied tissues, you see uh, changes in the expression patterns of different connections as a tissue develops. I was just talking with some graduate students about the heart. The heart, of course, is uh, one of the most famously gap junction uh, coupled groups of cells. Uh, they have massive gap junctions because the whole point of it is uh, for a few cells that serve as the pacemakers to propagate their action potentials reliably and again and again from one cell to the neighboring cell and on down the line so that the entire heart contracts in a very uh, scripted and uh, uh, you know has to do it in a particularly uh, organized way with a certain timing. Um, the heart as it develops in mammals uh, uses a variety of different connections and the ones that are important early in development, even in embryonic development, are not the same as the ones that are important later on in development. Um, connection 40... Again, I'm, I'm no expert on the heart, but uh, we, a few years ago, were interested in studying connection 45 in the brain because connection 45, it turns out, is also it's one of the few other connections that's um, often expressed in neurons exclusively non-glia. And in fact, many of the neurons that express 36 also express 45. Now, we know next to nothing about the functions of 45 
in any of these neurons. But it's an important one in the heart, and apparently it's especially important early in development. If you knock out 45 uh, in a standard sort of way, it's, it's embryonic lethal because the heart is just uh, dysfunctional. Um, but 45 becomes much less important later on in development. I guess the heart's using other connections to, uh, to, to mediate propagation. And, and at any one time, different parts of the heart are using different connections. Oh, I, I just had a question about uh, mammalian connections and kind of everything that I know of them. Uh, for the neurons, it's usually process-to-process uh, uh, -process connections. Are, are, are there somatic connections? I mean, can it be a dendrosomatic uh, gap junction? And, and yeah, so there's nothing... <clears throat> In principle, I think any part of a neuron could form a gap junction with any other part of a neuron. And you can see examples of uh, almost anything you want out there if you look in the right place. So I should, uh, dendro dendritic gap junctions are, are very common. Dendrosomatic is not uncommon. Um, these mesencephalic nucleus of five neurons are somasomatic and uh, basically no dendrites to speak and of they have no dendrites so where else are you going to put them you could have put them on the axons mm -hmm. uh, and I just described a, a minute ago how there are axons that certainly make uh, let's say axodendritic gap junctions uh, there's some evidence for axoaxonic gap junctions and Roger Traub and his collaborators have um, have been uh, proponents of the idea that, that you see quite a bit of this in the hippocampus, uh, either between axons of pyramidal cells or dentate granule cells, or lately they have some evidence that mossy fiber projections into the dentate, uh, into the, the hylus, I guess, might make mixed synapses. Um, so, so, yeah. Uh, it, I, Presumably cells, you know, if they're the right kinds of cells, they have the machinery to plug in gap junctions almost anywhere. So look, can, can we zoom out a little bit? And can you give us a little bit more of a big picture here? Is it all about synchrony, synchronizing in groups of like inner neurons to sort of shape? And what, what is your big picture of why these are so important? I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, so <laughs> let's flesh it out a little more here. No, it's not all about synchrony. <clears throat> And what you're alluding to is the, the fact that in neurons that generate action potentials or some kind of subthreshold activity, gap junctions uh, are pretty well documented. To, to uh, Gap junctions of the sort of strength that you see naturally um, can be pretty good at mediating uh, synchrony and other kinds of interactions between cells. But uh, it, it can't be all about synchrony because... For example, um, gap junctions are expressed in cells all over the body, uh, many of which don't generate any kind of, um, at least for neurophysiologists, what we would call interesting electrical activity. Certainly don't generate action potentials or synaptic potentials or uh, integrate information through that means. So, so, so take cells in the, in the, the liver or, or epithelia. Uh, the gap junctions are very common between um, lots of cells. And unless you're going to argue that they are not serving any purpose short of maybe adhesion, which is possible but unlikely, um, the signaling function they serve probably has more to do with uh, the fact that these gap junction channels are large enough to allow a variety of small signaling molecules to pass 
pretty readily. A lot of the, depends on the connections, but the pore sizes of gap junction channels can be quite large, big enough to, in some cases, let uh, molecules up to about, you know, like a rate of a thousand pass pretty well. So, so there's a chemical signaling function to gap junctions that's very well documented. Um, it's important in a variety of non-neural processes in particular. It's important in development. Again, these developing cells, um, many of them are not electrically excitable, but gap junctions are pretty popular there. And presumably, it's uh, allowing the cells to coordinate things like their cell cycle, their metabolism, um, growth. So we, we've had Bard Ermentrout and Tim Lewis here talking about um, conductance based models of phase locking and weakly coupled oscillators. But I, I want to—I I guess I wanted to get at where those where where this is an important thing for communication, electric communication. Is it just about synchrony? Like what, uh, one of the things so. that's, that those models predict is synchrony, and under other conditions they predict something else. Sometimes they predict antiphase. Right. And there's a variety of variants of these models that produce a, a wide variety of different things. So most of those things go untested. But uh, there's at least one test. It's from your lab uh, in which you are recording from cells that are connected by electrical junctions. You make them fire and you ask, you know, what do I get? Mm -hmm. And and in a way, it's it's a confirmation of these pretty abstract models that uh, super simplified representations of neurons and very abstract ideas, and uh, yet it worked pretty well. And you got phase locking at, uh, at at one to one and at two to one ratios and uh, disruption in between, uh, which is all kind of what you expect to see. Of course, it was. I guess the cells were not getting a lot of other inputs and you were controlling them. Right. They were under very controlled circumstances. One of the things you never saw, as far as I can tell from reading that paper, is antiphase phase uh, yes, locking. that's true. And in fact, uh, because of the predictions, of course, one of our collaborators there was Tim Lewis, and um, motivated by his results and predictions of his models, as well as the predictions of a variety of other people's models. Actually, I think Nancy Capel and um, um, Carson Chow had done an early model of coupled neurons where uh, they, they, they also showed that under certain circumstances, actually at very high frequencies, they could get a, a shift from um, synchrony to antiphase. Um, Tim's models and other people's models showed that, uh, again, with the right kinds of cells, you could get both antiphase and you could get regions of bi-stability. So, so this is what we expected from some of the interneurons, especially the fast spiking cells, that there would be regime, there should be a regime, especially at low firing frequencies, where they might be bi-stable. They could sometimes fire in synchrony, sometimes uh, in anti-synchrony, and we looked really hard for that. I mean, seemed pretty hard at the time, um, even to the point of, so they wouldn't do it on their own. This is in both fast spiking and in low We did it in both fast spiking and, and, that's right, low threshold very spiking different cells. different types of cells, yeah. They are, although... By physically, I mean. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and we would have expected probably more bi-stability in the fast spiking cells, again, because they have this more biphasic electrical PSP, if I can call it that because 
because of the low-pass filtering characteristics of these kinds of connections, the action potential is attenuated strongly. The AHP, um, because it's slower, gets through reasonably well or better. Um, so it's more like an IPSP. Yeah. And, and in fact, you get the same predictions from networks that are coupled through IPSPs. And, and in fact, we, we have published data from pairs of interneurons that have no gap junctions but are connected reciprocally by inhibitory connections. And in that case, you can drive the two cells at similar frequencies. And at low frequencies, they do this. They go in antiphase. Uh, and if you drive them to faster frequencies, they'll flip into synchrony. So that works, even in real two real neurons. If you add a gap junction, or in those pairs that had both gap junctions and reciprocal inhibition, the, uh, it was a much more stable, synchronous, the synchrony was more stable. Basically, you couldn't drive them. You couldn't get them to fire in antiphase. And that was true of purely gap junction coupled cells as well. Um, the extreme experiment we tried, I mean, to induce them to stay in antiphase, we would, we would drive them with brief pulses of current in antiphase and then kind of let them go, and they'd almost immediately flip back into spike synchrony. So they, they didn't want to do it. Maybe we were doing something wrong, but uh, um, in principle, it should be there. Now, these fast spiking cells naturally have a mix of uh, both gap junctions and, and inhibitory connections. So it could be that in a, under more real-world conditions, they, they, they can do the antiphase thing, but we just never actually were able to demonstrate it. So is there anything did there is that uh, have you heard from your theoretical colleagues? Are they going off and scratching their heads? Is it a missing saying, parameter? Like, uh, yeah, sure. uh, no, it didn't seem to bother anybody. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's a variety of things you might think. Either a lot of those things you have either symmetrical uh, parameters and it does it really well. Things are really exactly sim symmetry. You break the symmetry between no two cells are exactly the like, and yeah. it's a lot robust. Or whether you have some distance effects, or you have some spatial kinds of things, also screws up a lot of the theory a little bit. That may be more sensitive to that thing than you might expect. Right, and because there are so many possibilities, so many parameters to play with, uh, you know, people aren't daunted by that. Um, uh, there's been a lot of interesting theoretical work. David Gollum and David Hansel did some, also some uh, interesting modeling work looking at the, the importance of spike shape on the phase response curves and, and the ability of systems of cells to synchronize and um, of course spike neurons in the brain are I mean you know someone with experience can can look at a single action potential and and uh, and in many cases tell you exactly where that came from what kind of cell generated that action potential at least within uh, you know, certain within certain boundaries and, and it turns out that the spike shape has a lot to do with the way the cells interact with one another through gap junctions. Again, because large part because of the filtering uh, that you get from one cell to the next. Um, so I think it's probably going to depend on the details. And these were all, I mean, our experiments and the models, and many of these models are only on two neurons. Um, I can't think of too many places in the brain that operate with just pairs of neurons. Uh, what you get when you couple them together in larger networks becomes a very interesting, more complicated kind of question.
So under some circumstances, you've seen at least transient desynchronization that's caused by gap junctions. And uh, so there's a possibility that, um, that as looking at, always looking at steady state is yeah, that's hiding another, a lot of things that, from us. In, in these coupled models, uh, the time it takes to achieve synchrony is ignored. It could be extremely long. Uh, and we just focus on this steady state. But the brain doesn't mm-hmm. wait for the steady state. It's right. doing something else right. all the time. Right. And again, in the, in the context of Golgi cells in the cerebellum, there's been some pretty interesting work on that. Uh, or both the experimental, experimental evidence is pretty good. And, and, and there's been a number of attempts to model both pairs and networks of cells um, where you can demonstrate this pretty robustly. That in the steady state resting conditions, the cells fire synchronously very nicely, but a transient input to one piece of the network, even a single cell, sends out um, uh, signals to the adjacent cells of uh, heterogeneous um, strength and kicks those cells out of phase and gives you a period that can last quite a while of of, uh, desynchronization, or um, I want to call it asynchrony, disrupts the, the synchrony and, and the, as those cells then spike and kick out their electrical signals to their neighbors it, it, it sort of maintains that desynchronization sometimes for quite a while and then it slowly percolates back to so if we think you know when we're thinking about steady state we're thinking about you know a group of cells that are all kind of basically getting the same input and they've allowed themselves lots of time to, to, to stabilize but in the, in a real cortical circuit where different parts, you know, this uh, fast spiking cell is getting different input from the next fast spiking cell. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there, do we have any ideas about, is there a theory, you know, of the transient response to this uh, network as it's getting, uh, because it seems like it's more likely what the, the electrical connections between fast spiking cells is doing is more likely to be in that regime than in the steady state. Yeah. And then, and it might be, you know, uh, uh, feed forward inhibition sort of uh, local versus global or something. Mm-hmm. That, is there, do, do we have, are we started on thinking about those <laughs> kinds of things? Are we, uh, we, we have a, you know, we might have a, a small start on thinking about those things. Um, I, I don't think there's been too much work to really uh, I know you've formalize it. Uh, <clears throat> connections, lateral electrical connections a lot in the cortex, and you've looked at the sort of propagation of uh, sinusoidal oscillations and stuff in the cortex. Is that all kind of part of the same story? Uh, I wish I knew the answer. Um, I, I think there's a whole... So, so to get away from synchrony, get back to your original question, is it all synchrony? I, I think the answer is no. I started to answer with the, the most extreme version where gap junctions... And this might be true of interneurons. I mean, it, it, it's, I don't think it's likely to be true, but it might be that gap junctions between interneurons are really there to pass uh, small signaling molecules. That would be, and we're just off on some uh, red herring, you know, looking at some fantasy land of, uh, of, of um, interactions that, that doesn't really uh, occur under real-world conditions. But... Um, Assuming that's not the case, it's probably still not all about synchrony. Um, 
if we think about interneurons in the cortex, it looks like uh, from some of the nice imaging work that Clay Reed's lab and others have done recently, different kinds of interneurons have seem to have, at least in sensory cortex, a, it's kind of a general principle that they they uh, you know they're less well tuned to stimuli, sensory stimuli, say in the visual cortex, visual stimuli, than are the pyramidal cells, the principal cells there. Uh, they, they um, and, and we know they're coupled through gap junctions. Um, so there are a few possibilities. Maybe the gap junctions are there to degrade their selectivity and that there's something, some models would predict an advantage to sets of inhibitory interneurons that have a uh, less uh, stimulus specificity and they're there more for I mean, you name it, um, balancing of excitation and inhibition in a, in a sort of general sense, both locally, spatially, and temporally. So you want to degrade their, their selective responses to transient stimuli that come along. Gap junctions would be a good way to get some sort of uh, averaging of activity across groups of similar types of interneurons. Um, uh, maybe, and, and so it could be that Take the parvalvian cells in the cortex. They get these very strong thalamic inputs. Um, if we forget about gap junctions for a minute. Presumably that's in part to mediate uh, very rapid, reliable, robust feed-forward inhibition onto the pyramidal cells or the principal cells. But the fact that they're gap junction connected means that some of that current's going to go squirting out into the interneuron neighbors. So you're kind of dispersing what's... a it might be a very selective input to one or two fast spiking cells, and they're sharing that with uh, with the rest of them in the in the area. Again, tending to disperse the effect of uh, of this salient input that's coming in across a variety of cells that are going to con all contribute to feed forward inhibition. Um, so, in that sense, it's not about synchrony per se. Uh, it's about it's more about um, dispersion or averaging. So it seems like that is really you know it's an interesting thing. It's a useful uh, fiction if, in terms of chemical synapses and, and having this whole idea of action potentials. That way you can talk about integration and processing in a neuron, and it does all this stuff in some continuous slow things. Lots of things add up, and then you have this pulse that goes out and talks to everybody else in a kind of punctate kind of manner. And so you can separate those time scales. Uh, in gap junction electrical coupling, you both have this sharp electrical thing, but you also have some subthreshold thing, and that gets communicated. So now uh, you can't separate necessarily spatially, kind of like you're talking about, kind of spatially and temporally. It's harder to separate those kind of two kinds of processing, and it it just gets mixed up. It seems it's hard or different to think to think about mm -hmm. how what. You get this different information system going on, and that interacts with your normal chemical spike-based kind of system. Uh, and somewhere along the way, you talked about plasticity. I mean, is this? Are there opportunities within the system? Because we think of it as a sort of sort of syncytium. Is that how you pronounce syncytium? Syncytium. Syncytium. Connecting things sort of bidirectionally, passively. You know, is there by plasticity? Do you mean that there's an opportunity here to? make inputs directional to take the history of a firing history of a cell and, you know, sh sort of shunt, shunt activity in one mm -hmm. direction or another. I mean, is, are, 
is there that level of control, do you think, at work in the system? Um, it's a great question, and I, I, I don't know the answer. I, I think of it, uh, I think it's more likely that, that there's, uh, there could be a general change. This, of course, everything's regulated in the brain. Uh, I'm sure that the gap junctions are regulated, uh, at least over very slow time scales. Um, uh, whether you get very local bits of plasticity that, that help to shape the, the local dynamics of circuits or not, I, I, I'm not sure. We really know very little about the plasticity of, of gap junctions in the, in the CNS. Again, the best work is, is really from the fish mouth nerve cell system. Uh, that gives us, uh, that tells us that, and, and, and I should say that the connections in the fish called, this is work of John O'Brien's and his uh, colleagues a long time ago, they first cloned Connexin 35 from fish, um, and that's actually what led people to find Connexin 36 in mammals. So it's a, it's a very uh, very similar Connexin subtype that they have in the fish and um, has similar phosphorylation sites, and these are involved uh, presumably in the plasticity mechanisms. Um, and there's beautiful work that these guys have done in the retina on these electrical synapses between various kinds of neurons in the retina and the plasticity mechanisms. So what we have not seen in the mammalian forebrain is a good demonstration of long-term potentiation of these synapses, but there's every reason to think that it can be done under the right inducements. Certainly you can get long-term depression. Um, Carol Landison in my lab a number of years ago showed that metabotropic glutamate receptor activation on thalamic particular cells can generate a, a long-lasting depression of gap junction strength. And she and Julie Haas recently showed that bursts of spikes in thalamic particular cells uh, via some kind of calcium-mediated mechanism can also cause a long-term depression of gap junction strength. Now, none of us has figured out which buttons to push to get the synapses to strengthen, but I, I have no doubt that that can happen. Can it happen on a local scale, or does it happen on a local scale? Um, maybe. Well, uh, thanks so much. This has been really great. Uh, thank you, Barry Connors, for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks,